I want to start with two. I just want to be really honest with you now. I, 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 when I um, came up with these, when we, well, with the team and, and chatted with the guys, said, let's look at something in the book of Acts. Um, I always felt that we should talk about this topic. And then, not being a particular man of detail, I realized I put myself down to speak on it. And um, I thought, well, I don't really want to talk about this. And there's two things I want to start with, a kind of apology, really, to, sh- to share my heart. A couple of weeks ago, um, Alan and I hosted the welcome evening um, here, which I think was huge fun. Um, we, well, I think we had fun. Where is he? Oh, there he is at the back. <laughs> I think we had fun. There was a little bit of banter, and people asked us some questions. And then uh, a lady came to me at the end, and we'd got connected with her. She's from Botswana originally, and she grew up in Wolverhampton. So, so we had a kind of Midlands connection. Uh, and she said, um, and she asked me, she said, I didn't want to embarrass you in front of everybody else. But she said, um, where are we at? Where's this church at with the race conversations? And I thought, what an amazing question. And being the extrovert processor I am, I, I, I waffled, I was waffling, I was waffling. And then I stopped and said, you know, we're not as far as we should be. And that's true. The representation is not great. And um, that weighed heavy on my heart. And then over a couple of weeks ago, we were in London. And at a conference, Clarissa and I went down to, to London. And we had, uh, I met some of the most amazing guys. I met a fantastic leader who is leading a church in Lewisham, South East London that his father planted part of the Windrush generation. He was telling the most amazing stories of what God is doing. And also heard some of the stories that are coming out from the different communities post-George Floyd. And it just ins- I just felt nailed by the Holy Spirit that we have to do more. And so we're going to do that. I'm going to take responsibility to, to do that, to start those conversations. So if you're sat there thinking, what is this church doing? The answer is, I need to be super honest and say, not enough. And that isn't right. And I take full responsibility. And the Lord has nailed me. And we're going to start it. And the second thing is, you may have been for the last couple of weeks, and this is what we're going to talk about tonight. You might think, oh, they, do these guys actually have women speakers here? The answer is yes. But honesty time, we haven't done enough to raise up women. And if Helen did an amazing message last week, and full disclaimer, it was going to be Liam. He can't be here tonight for a whole host of reasons. Jesus, heal him. And the reason that Helen stepped in is because tonight we're going to... Yeah, who was that? He's, we'll pass that on, Sarah. That'll bless him, won't he? Mate, you're on thin ice as it is this week with uh, Mark Mellowish. Anyway, let's not go down that one. <laughs> and so Helen has stepped in because I realized, actually, we need to do more. And so tonight's folks, what I'm speaking on is why I think women can lead churches. And I want to speak, thanks, Sam. I want to speak from, we're going to look at Lydia in um, we're going to look at the book of Acts, following on from what Sam mentioned last week, which is absolutely amazing. And if you've got a Bible, if you've got um, a phone, or if you've actually got a book, I love just the... I just love to hold the book, but there you go. Acts chapter 16, verses 11 through to 15. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, 
and the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of the district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Amen. So about five years ago or so, I am at a diocese conference. What is a diocese? A diocese is a kind of Anglican collective noun for a lot of Anglican churches in a particular area. And every two years, a diocese will put on a conference, and you get a three-line whip from the bishop, which is get your derriere there. Now, just before I get into that, James, are we able to show that picture? There you go. Let me, I'm just going to pause right now. So, so for those of you know, we had a Labrador, Archie, 12 years old. He died. Um, we better have him put down in the summer. But next week, we have a new dog. And she's arriving, and we can't decide on the name. This is a problem when you have kids. Everybody, we've got some stakeholders now. My son wants to go with butter. No, no, because you can abbreviate it to butt. It's not fine. You can't be shouting at Bow Hills butt, can you? It's not good. So there you go. She's, she's arrived next week. She'll eat the house. It's going to be awesome. We're very excited. And honestly, my excitement levels have dropped slightly over the week because they kind of cry in the nights for the first couple of weeks. I have kids again, and they eat everything. So uh, anyway, but we'll, she will feature loads in lots of stories, and I may bring her in. She may come in for Christmas. Who knows? There you go. Anyway, back to it. So um, we can lose the picture now, James. Fantastic. So about five years ago, I'm at a diocese conference. It's a, it's a, it's a three-line whip. You've got to be there. And we, it's, I can't even remember what it was on. But I remember there was a particular moment in, a, in, a, in the morning. Uh, so I, I got up fairly early, which is unusual for me, and I'm having breakfast. And the table is clear, and I'm thinking, Lord Jesus, I don't know who's going to sit next to me. Anyway, a number of guys came and sat down next to me, and it turned out to be all men and all from a particular type of churchmanship. And when I say particular type of churchmanship, I mean everyone's wearing chinos, Everyone wears shirts and boat shoes, right? Praise God for boat shoes. But I was living in Cambridge at the time, and that is the kind of thing that people wear. Uh, ben Humphrey, I'm not sure if you're here, but he was wearing, he's got them on. Ben, stand up, let's see the boat shoes now. This is, this is an English gentleman right here, right now, with his boat shoes. That's it. That, that's, that's uh, yeah, there you go. That's, they looked all just like Ben, but, but wearing chinos. And we're all chatting away. God bless you, brother. And we're chatting away. And it's a great conversation, and there's a little bit of humor, not a lot. Because <laughs> it's a diocese thing, you know, but there's enough to think, oh, it's not too bad. And I always feel, my uncomf- my, I'm always fairly uncomfortable at those kind of things, so it was all right. And then they get to the conversation, which church are you at? I'm at this church, this church, this church, this church. And they say to me, oh, which church are you at? And I say, well, I'm at St. Barnabas in Cambridge. And they're like, oh. And the atmosphere, and it just changes slightly. And I was like, this is weird. And I thought, ah, I know what it is. It's because I work for a woman. I work for Anne McLaurin, legend. 
who came here. She was in, in, in um, she was at this church. God called her down to Cambridge. She was at St. Thomas's Philadelphia, an amazing, amazing leader. One of the best golfers I've seen. No one played golf with her. She was so good. She had, before being ordained, worked in Marks and Spencer's, set up two branches of M&S in Hong Kong, had kind of travelled the corporate world right almost to the very top of the tree. An amazing, gifted, wonderful leader. She is my son's godmother, and we love her dearly. The most, one of the, just had the privilege of learning so much from her. And I remember in that moment thinking, ah, it's because I work for her and you don't think she should be leading the church. Nobody said anything, but they didn't need to. So let's think today about Lydia. The Apostle Paul is on his second missionary journey. He's arrived, he's set out from Troas gone to Samothras and has arrived in a place called Philippi. Now, Philippi is an interesting place. It's a Roman colony. It's a place of, it's a place, it's a really influential place. It's got a lot of kind of ex-soldiers who kind of retired there because of the climate. And the Apostle Paul is doing what him and his kind of missionary team always do. They're always looking for opportunities. They're always looking for people who are open to the gospel. And for years, our church has taught this thing called the people of peace. And often, if people have been around a while, they hear that, they kind of roll their eyes and go, oh, people of peace. But actually, it's something that we see in the scripture. And for the Apostle Paul, what he does is he goes out and he looks for a synagogue because he's grown up in the Jewish faith. And as Sam Watson said last week, before his kind of divine rebrand from Saul to Paul, it recognises that God has changed his life and now he has this call to connect with Gentiles, non-Jewish people. But he would always go for people who he understood, who he had a natural connection with, and he'd always look for a, the place where Jews were, the synagogue. But there isn't a synagogue in Philippi. And the reason there isn't a synagogue in Philippi is because there are not enough for, to, to, to build a synagogue. You'd have to have 10 men. Ten Jewish men. But there aren't ten Jewish men, so there's no synagogue. But here are some women who are hungry to encounter God, and they're meeting by a river just outside the city gates, and there is something around in the ancient world. If you gather near a, a river, there is something about kind of divine life, and it's a place of prayer. And so they're gathering to pray, and the apostle Paul knows that they are God-fearers. They're people who are open to God, and so he goes and joins them. And as is the custom, because he is trained in the rabbinic schools, he begins to speak. And there is a woman there called Lydia, and the Lord opens her heart, and she encounters Jesus radically in that moment. Now, who is Lydia? This is really, really, really important that we capture this. Lydia is an incredibly powerful woman. Just hear that. Because like when you think sometimes of the Bible, you think, oh, it's, it's all misogynistic. It's really anti-women. Now, let's, let's just hear what is going on here. He says this. Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. Okay, so one of the major ways that people made money in Philippi was the textile world. And Lydia was at the, not only was she, she a woman of influence, but she was the top of her game. So think of like the best fashion designers that you kind of track on Instagram. This is Lydia. 
Because not only does she deal in cloth, she deals in purple cloth. And what does purple represent? It's divinity and royalty. So if you were like the top of your game, she was the woman that you would talk to. She was loaded. And because she was loaded, she had tremendous influence and she had tremendous power. Now, what archaeologists tell us as they've tracked through Philippi, they've realized that there were very, very powerful women who were influential in politics and the civic world. And so she now encounters Jesus. Her life is radically changed. We know that she's a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And in verse 15, it says this. I love Luke, the writer of Acts, because he's dead kind of, it misses out a load of detail, my kind of guy. When she and the members of her house were baptized, she invites us to her home. Okay, let's just pause for a moment, okay? Because often in the New Testament, um, the, where it, it, a, a woman is, is identified with her husband, okay? Most often. But, but Luke doesn't tell us if, anything about a man. He doesn't mention him. So we don't really know if Lydia is a widow. We don't know. But for the truth, the, the reality is that a man is not mentioned. That is a big deal. It shows that, that she's such a woman of influence in her own right. And then there's something even more remarkable. She leads her whole household to faith to such a degree that her whole household gets baptized. Now, I know you think about household, you're thinking, okay, that's like maybe parents, one or two kids, so what, big deal. No, 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 no. The Greek word is oikos. Okay, so you've been around a while, we've talked about oikos. Oikos is the kind of unit on which the ancient world survived, the ancient world operated. Who was in an oikos? Slaves have been in oikos. Um, family would be in an oikos, slaves' children would be in an oikos, you would, have your f- you would have your clients. Now, she's got a lot of clients. It would be um, anybody that you deal with would all be considered into your oikos. So we don't quite know how many people come to faith, but one thing is for sure, she is an absolute powerhouse. She encounters Jesus. There is this radical conversion and her whole household gets converted. She probably lives in a humongous villa. I know what you're thinking, swimming pool. Could be nice. Nice part of the world, good weather, fantastic. The whole lot get baptized. And do you know what? Even more amazing. She goes and she invites Paul and his companions to go stay with her. Now you're thinking, so what? Big deal. So what? Who cares? Let me tell you something, you're going, to re- you're going to find this really interesting, about patronage in the ancient world. When is he finished? Get the Labrador back up. Why is patronage really important? Patronage is how the ancient... <laughs> oh, Mr. Royal. Oh, James, it's been lovely having you with us, brother. I'll give you, I'll give you a great reference. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding, brother. I love you, really. I love you. So in her role as the kind of demeanor in the Latin womb, she invites Paul to come live with her. Patronage is this. It means that, that, that she has so much wealth that essentially she offers to fund Paul's mission for the time he's in Philippi. 
So I give him a blank check. It's like hanging over his credit card. Go spend, go spend money. It means that whoever Paul now connects with in the city of Philippi, when he goes somewhere and knocks on the door, says, oh, Lydia has sent me. So it's like he, 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 he begins to orbit her world. He stays in her villa. He receives her hospitality. He receives her money. She, he uses her influence and her contacts. No doubt, because this is how patronage works. And pat, the way that patronage works in the, Old Testament, in the New Testament, in the ancient world, it's a bit like you scratch my back. It means I do something for Ben. And now, Ben, you've got to do something for me. It's how it's how the ancient society works. So Paul recognizes the influence of Lydia. He receives her patronage. He kind of he moves into her villa. He uses her money that she gives to him. He recognizes that she is a woman of great influence. And people argue that she started. The, the church in Philippi, this woman of God who is a leader in the civic world, in the business world, and in the church world. But here's the thing, folks. We don't really know, reading the book of Philippians, the extent to which that she went on to have a continued role in Philippi. We just don't know. The scriptures don't say. But what we can say with some degree of certainty that this woman of God, this deeply influential woman of God, is used dramatically by Jesus to kickstart the church in Philippi. Not only does she kickstart it, she funds it. She stakes her reputation on it. She does the most amazing thing. Now you're thinking, you might be thinking, so what? Well, here's the thing. Christians generally divide, and I use that word deliberately, in two views around women's leadership. One, a complementarian view. I'm going to throw out... Is that a cheer? Oh, I see. Okay. I thought, you were cheer. I thought it was Molly up in the balcony, but she, I think she's, she's, she's disappeared off to have a fag, hasn't she? God bless her. Never. No, I'm joking. She hasn't really. Um, it's a complementarian view. Sarah Carroll's going to boo. I'm going to talk to me about honouring people of different positions, okay? Just in, just in, in a... You know, just, just, you want to say nice, Mark Mellowish? Um... And that would take the view that, that men and women have different roles, but would take the view that women can't have specific roles like teaching or speaking in the church. And there will be people in this room potentially who would hold those views, which is why I'm not going to encourage too much booming, if that's okay. I have really good friends who hold that view. One of the, great, one of the leaders who has showed me so much kindness since stepping into this role is Paul Williams, the former vicar of Christ Church Forward. We would not share the same view on women's ministry, but he is incredibly kind to me, and I want to honour him and that amazing church, Christ Church Forward. Because there's something powerful about Christians dwelling in unity when we don't agree. And I would say to particularly if you're at the younger end of things, it is so easy to divide over this issue and start throwing stuff at you and cancelling each other. And I'd want to say, do you know, Jesus talks a lot about unity. And if we look at the pattern of the New Testament, that isn't everybody who looks the same and agrees with you. It's often warring people coming together in the name of Jesus to form something beautiful. Just want to get that out on the table right now. Interestingly, in Cambridge, when I worked for Amaclon, do you know the church that was most kind to us was St. Andrew the Great, stag, hold a complementarian view of scripture. They were all terrified that Aaron's going to beat them at golf. I think that's the reality. That's the absolute truth. So there's two views of scripture. 
people take. One is complementarian. The second is egalitarian, which is a view that I would take. So I think that women can speak. I think that w- women can lead churches. And there's two, another two kind of geeky words I want to throw out there, which is really helpful for us to think about this. One is the word exegesis. Exegesis is what we do when we look at the scripture in its context. That means that people like me have loads of books in my office, occasionally read, but it means I get really excited when I look at the Greek. And I look at a big book, and think, oh, that's really just the Greek past participle for whatever. And everyone else is like, what that? My wife's also like, so what? Do you know what I mean? It's called exegesis. You're looking in the scripture in its context. But the second word that is really important is called hermeneutics. I'm not making these up. These are not medical terms. These are words that people use. And that is this. How does it apply to our current context? You see, it's very easy for us who take an egalitarian view of Scripture to take some of those passages in Corinthians and others that say women should be silent, that women shouldn't have authority over men, and say, oh, it's just of its time. It's just context. We don't need to think about that anymore. But I'd want to say this. If we're going to do our hermeneutic well, let's look at 1 Corinthians 14, 13 to, I can't even read my writing, I think it's 15, or 1 Timothy 12, women should not teach or in public and they should remain quiet. It's easy for us to go, oh yeah, it's just, you know, that's out of date. We don't do that anymore. Blah, da, 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 da. But if we're going to do our hermeneutic well, folks, which is to look at the Bible and think about its context, then we need to say, does the Bible speak into this situation? If you know some of close to our, our, our story, you'll know that we struggled with infertility for years. You might think, what the heck has this got to do with anything? Okay, let me tell you this. We, we had to decide whether we are going to do IVF. And if you know anything of that, that, you'll know that that raises some ethical questions. And so I did what most people do. I just went on the internet. Well, I tell you, I met, there's some crazy people out there, folks. I met, I met some real crazy nutters. And I watched the conversation with these two Americans. I don't know where they're down in the South. Come on, church, let me hear an amen. And they're talking, they're talking about IVF. They're talking about IVF babies. Now, if, you, if you've seen my, our, our youngest, Phoebe, she, she came about through IVF. And um, I watched these two kind of Americans go back and forth. Come on, church, let me hear an amen. And this is what they said. They said, children born of IVF have no soul. I just thought I might start watching this on YouTube now. I'm not sure that's really helpful. But what Chris and I did decide to do is that actually, if we're going to be a disciple, and if what the psalmist who writes 109, Psalm 119, your word is a lamp into our feet, then in some senses, Scripture must speak into this. So we took a decision that when we would save all our eggs in the IVF process, because we felt actually life begins at conception, which means we could have a lot of kids and no money. And we ended up with no money and three kids. So a lot didn't work. But our hermeneutic said, we in this moment, these difficult ethical moments, need to ask and study the scriptures with friends that we trust to say, what is God saying in this really complicated situation? And for us, we chose to do it, but we tried to do it in the most ethical way to honour what we felt was right with scripture and right before the Lord. And I'm absolutely convinced my daughter does have a soul. Mr. Nice American on YouTube. And so I want to turn, there are loads of passages that I could, we could go through. And if this is of interest to you and you're like, you know, I'd love to 
get into some of this meaty stuff. I love geeking it up, guys, seriously. And I would love any opportunity to geek it up. And if it's helpful, we could do an evening. We could talk about this a bit more. Well, three of you might come, but we could have a lot of fun. I want to turn to Romans chapter 1 and I want to look at a couple of verses if I can because I want to say, what does this, what does, there's so much in the scriptures that you might meet people that pick out and say, oh, women shouldn't speak. But there's a couple here that, that I think are helpful. Let's look at this, Romans 16 verse 1. I put, this is the end of Romans. Paul says this, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of this church in Senecre. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you. For he, she has been the benefactor, remember that word, of many people, including me, Paul says. Okay, let's go scroll down a little bit. I don't know why I said scroll down, I'm looking in a book. Anyway, there you go. I've been hanging out with young people. Um, verse 7. Greet Andronicus and Unia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. Listen to these words. They are outstanding among the apostles. And they were in Christ before I was. Now, let me give you a cue. Unia is a feminine name. It's talking about a woman. And do you know, for years and years and years, Bible of tr- translators have changed that to a masculine name to make it look like a man. Isn't that amazing? Oh, it's heartbreaking for my sisters, for my daughters. Such has been that relentless desire to almost rewrite scripture. So let's go back to Phoebe. Here's, here's a couple of words, Okay. Says here, um, a deacon. What does that mean? It comes from a Greek word, diakonos. You think, so what? Okay, let me tell you. It means to. It means another word for uh, minister, uh, servant. Um, does it? Does, sometimes it can. Um, so people have, have kind of reduced it to uh, serving or helping. The problem is, by the time that Paul is writing this, he's not talking about offices of church or titles given to people. That comes much later. Well, if we think about this word, it's actually an, a, a, a term that he describes to himself, diakonos. And it, when he describes it to himself, it's always authoritative roles in the body of Christ. So when he describes himself as a diakonos, it's always in the context of leading other people. And now he says Phoebe is a diakonos in a time when he would use that to describe himself in the same way. And, of course, the Apostle Paul does have authority to preach and to teach. And so theologians read this and say, well, hang on a minute. Phoebe clearly has a call to lead. The second word is prostasis in the Greek. Now, some Bible um, translate that as a great help. What does that mean? But in this Bible and in the NRSV, it says benefactor. Who else was a benefactor? Lydia. He's describing somebody who has not only... uh, Phoebe is somebody who's not only had an authority teaching, an authority in church leading 
but she has also been somebody who has given her money, has given her wealth and her resources to Paul. And this is what Paul says, for he, she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Now, this is the only time that word is used in the whole of the New Testament. Paul uses it as a verb. And when Paul uses it in Romans 12, 8, he says, he says that it describes it as this, who leads, who, who leads diligently. In a different, in a similar way, in 1 Thessalonians 5.22, he says, respect for those who instruct you. It means to, in 1 Timothy 5.12, it's to direct or preside over. Paul uses it first time in Romans and then for the verb and then the noun, he uses it slightly differently to describe somebody who leads. And if you want to super geek it up, it's called linguistic comparison, according to Wikipedia. I'm just kidding, I didn't look at Wikipedia. It's according to a man called Douglas Moo, who wrote a very thick commentary, which I have in my office, on the book of Romans, a Greek commentary. And he takes a complementarian view of scripture, which means he doesn't think that women should lead. But even he has said that this is a kind of stumping, because it's like, well, well Paul, Paul surely can't mean that Phoebe has, has led him or had authority over him. But then he said, well, but, but surely Paul means it. Paul wouldn't write it if he didn't mean it. You see, when the Bible has tra- translated this Greek word prostasis as helper, Paul's assertion is it means to lead. And that's what he says Phoebe does. And the second thing is, verse 7, is this, union. He says that she is outstanding among the apostles. It's from the Greek word apostolos, meaning one who is sent. And often if we track through scripture, those who have an apostolos calling on their lives, for Paul, the apostle Paul particularly, one of the absolute attributes of going to a new place to to plant church into a culture that he knows nothing about Christianity is one of the key calls of the apostolos, the apostle, is to teach and to lead as you plant churches. And there the Apostle Paul makes the case in Romans chapter 16, he includes two women who I think link back to Lydia, who is somebody who God uses powerfully as a woman of influence to plant a church, to fund a church, and to connect with a city. He uses her. And sometimes the church is divided on these issues. And I think it's important that if we're going to take an egalitarian view, well, I do, that we look to the scriptures to speak to us and then look to the scriptures to form us. And over this weekend, we've been thinking a little bit about calling. That's one John McGinley, the legend that is John McGinley. It's gone a bit quiet in here. Let's get that Labrador picture up quick, James. Um, I'm joking. Joking. Watching you. Call about calling. And I was just thinking um, today, I was thinking, how many women here feel that somehow that God can't use them 
because they don't have a valid place within the church. And if that is you, I want to say to you, I'm committed to raising up the next generation and I'm committed to raising up women. And if you're here and you feel your voice, particularly something about voice, has been silenced because people have said stuff in jest over you or quoted Bible verses at you and it's been deeply painful to you, I want to pray for you now that you may find your voice and speak out prophetically, like the Phoebes, raise up a generation of Phoebes to plant churches in this city and beyond. And I don't know whether that makes any sense. My apologies for the Greek words and whether it makes sense or not. But I just want to say to you today, we want to release Holy Spirit anointing fresh upon you that you may hear the call of Jesus to go and be influential wherever God's placed you.